Welcome. I'm Melissa Durda, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast. Stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practices, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Holly Lee, founding partner at Radiant Strategies. And I'm currently in New Mexico with my elderly mom and dad, and I cultivate my soul by taking really slow walks with them every morning at dawn. So today we are joined by Holly Lee. Holly Lee is a founding partner at Radiant Strategies, a boutique consulting practice that aims to change the subject in philanthropy. She is the co-founder of the Donors of Color Network, the first ever national project that is researching, engaging, and networking high net wealth donors of color across race, ethnicity, and life experience. She is the founder of the Asian Women Giving Circle, the first and largest giving circle in the U.S. led by Asian American women. Holly is currently writing a book called The Big We about how we, collectively, are so much more powerful than the sum of our individual parts. Holly's full bio is on our podcast website. So Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'd love to get us started by asking you to share a memory or story from your life that was instrumental in shaping your views on what matters. You guys ask hard questions, Melissa. So I grew up in Kansas City. My family immigrated here from Korea in the late 60s. My brother and I grew up in Kansas City. And the stories that I want to share are kind of around race. I remember being in Chicago, visiting my grandma. We were really little on a bus and this angry lady yelled at my mom. And my brother and I were sitting on my mom's lap to get off the bus or go to the back of the bus where we belonged. Another thing I remember, like every year, you know, we had like a pretty, honestly, idyllic childhood. You know, the backyards all connected in the little tidy suburb we grew up in. And I remember roaming around those backyards with the neighborhood kids with so much freedom and it just felt great. But about once a year, something awful would happen around race. And another time I remember a group of sixth graders who were the big kids at the elementary school that we went to chase my brother and I home saying, you know, really mean things. And I kind of thought we might die, you know, and we ran home and my mom was there and she chased them and she grabbed one of the kids and made him call his mom. I mean, these are the things that in a really rude, shocking way sort of made evident to me that we were not white, you know, that we were always going to be the other as well as we did in school or as good as we were at sports or we were always going to be the perpetual foreigner in this suburb of Kansas City where we grew up. And so how would you say that's influenced you and where you've taken the work that you do? I think there's kind of a line. It's a meandering line. I think it's important for all of us who are involved in social change work to really articulate in a personal way, like what's our road in to this work that we do. My family's immigrants. So for my brother and I, who are both involved in social change work and care a lot about equity and justice and race and gender, we are newcomers to this country, right? So we're joining a river of justice and equity and fights for resistance that have been led by mostly black people and also indigenous folks who've been here longer than anyone, right? So I think we have to articulate for each of us our road in. And for me, part of that story is 
my grandma and my parents and the two generations ahead of me in Korea lived through, you know, a hundred plus years of pretty brutal occupation and colonialization and cultural erasure by an imperial other country that really attempted to erase what was Korean about my parents and my grandparents and their ancestors' culture. That's the reason why so many Koreans came here, or that's one of the reasons why so many Koreans came here after 1965, which is when the immigration laws were changed to allow more people from non-Western European countries to come here. So my family were early arrivals after that law was passed, the Immigration Act of 1965. And then coming here and experiencing like the ideal of suburban Midwestern life in the 70s, you know, we had bikes, we just had freedom to roam and we walked to school and we played till dusk, you know, like we just had a lot of freedom. But it was really tinged by this intrusion or maybe the reality of race in America, whether we wanted to deal with it or not. So there's sort of a meandering line between the cultural sort of endowment inheritance that I got from my parents and the resistance struggles of my family in Korea in ways quiet and loud. You know, my maternal grandfather was imprisoned by the Japanese and almost killed. And then just five years later, he was taken away by what became the North Koreans and then never heard from again, leaving six children behind one who died. This is what I inherited right before I was even born. And then coming here, I think we see those kinds of divisions and again, but in a new setting. And it's how we deal with that and how we take what we learn from our own cultural backgrounds. Of course, mixed with all the the joy and the love of our family and our friends and the work that we do. Like That's kind of the through line for me, I think. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story and I can see there's a lot from past generations that are influencing you today and the work that you're doing. What we really look at as part of this storytelling is really is kind of our inner work or who we are and how that translates to the work that we're doing. And we're going to get into your work, which is just groundbreaking. But before we do, I'd like to just explore with you a little bit more about how is it that your past generation experience, how did this bring you into this work in philanthropy? I don't even know, Melissa. Like, I think (laughs) when I asked my friends in philanthropy, like, did you know you would be doing this? And no one thought they would be doing the work that we do. I mean, it's sort of happenstance. It's kind of like, you know, this random road of life, you know. For me, like, I started out, I went to social work school, and I worked in domestic violence, and I was the ED of a domestic violence organization in the Korean-American community in Queens. And through that experience, I learned about fundraising because you have to when you're an ED and being an executive director is the hardest job in the whole world. But one of the cool things that I got to do around that same time was I was asked to be on the board of the New York Women's Foundation, which is a wonderful organization that funds all the great women and girls projects in New York City. And there I really learned the power of kitchen tables, right? Kitchen tables have been the locus of a lot of powerful organizing and look at almost any women's fund around the world. And a lot of them were born literally around kitchen tables. And at the same time, I was part of a get, which is a Korean cultural concept of like a shared saving circle. And my parents were part of Gaz growing up, and I was part of several like totally frivolous, but super fun girlfriend Gaz. And I was part of one then with my girlfriends and we'd meet once a month for lunch and put our money into the pot and whoever's turn it was to take the pot home paid for lunch. And we often met at Ipudo because it's really yummy, not too expensive and easy to get to. And depending on how rich we felt in that circle, the pot might be $1,000 or $1,500. And we bought stupid things, but it was really fun. Like one year, one cycle, I bought 
a set of dishes that I really coveted, like so dumb, <laughs> but they're really pretty. And one year, one turn, I you know threw my husband a birthday party. It's, you could do whatever you want with it. But anyways, I took that idea of a get and added a philanthropic twist. And so we turned that idea of of a get shared saving circle into the Asian Women Giving Circle. And these gets exist in cultures around the world. Like my Mexican American friends call them tandas. Maybe you've heard of susus or isusus from certain West African communities and West Indian. My Eritrean, Ethiopian friends call them mahabers. My Indonesian girlfriend calls them arisons. You know, they exist. Tom Tom's another word that you might have heard from Vietnamese friends. And so they exist everywhere. And I think the trick is like, how do we turn these endowments that we've all gotten from our cultures and our backgrounds and our ethnicities and our families and turn that into a philanthropic thing in the U.S.? You kind of shifted this activity that's traditional from your culture that was a fun activity to do with your friends, and you created something that was a little bit more formally structured and quite new to the philanthropy space with the Asian Women Giving Circle. So tell us a little bit about some of the projects or some of the impacts that started to emerge for you in that space, just so we can get a clearer sense on what that looked like. Well, Melissa, how much time do you have? Because I could talk about this <laughs> for a long time. We're all volunteer. You know, we're a sisterhood of Asian American women in New York City, and we raise money and give it away to fund Asian American women and gender expansive folks who use the tools of arts and culture to bring about equitable social change. So here's an example. In 2009, I think, or maybe 2010, we got an application from a group of scrappy young activists who wanted to integrate the official Chinatown Lunar New Year Parade to include queer folks. Because at that time, you couldn't be gay or queer or trans or anything and march out in that parade. And they asked for, like, I think it was $4,000. It might have been $3,500. It was this really small grant. And I believe in my heart (laughs) that our grant paid for beer and Oreos and art supplies. (laughs) So they could mount a spectacle of dragon puppets and rainbow flags to crash that parade and marches out queer people. And we were delighted to fund this project. We said, we're going to march with you, you know. And that year, the parade was happening. You know, Lunar year, the date changes every year because it's a lunar calendar. And that year, it fell in early February. And the night before the march, they got official permission from the whoever, the powers that be to march. And they were kind of bummed because they were looking forward to crashing the party, you know. But we joined them and it was one of those glorious, bright, blue, crisp New York winter days. And it was so much fun. Since that day, that parade has been integrated for queer folks. They beat the Irish in integrating their parade for queer people. That night, my husband and I were making dinner for our kids. I heard the organizers of Q-Wave, that's what they were called at the time, they were interviewed on, you know, the my local public radio station news. They were interviewed in Time Out New York and the New York Times. We were their only funder who wasn't like a blood relative or a roommate. And they literally changed history, you know, like for $4,000. You know, you're not supposed to pick a favorite project or a favorite child. But I love that story because it just shows like what a scrappy group of activists can do with like history on their side and a clear vision and clear values to literally change the world and change history and their community for sure. And our city, New York City, a city that we love, an adopted city for most of us, right? And it also shows that a group of scrappy, not super rich donors who pull their money can join alongside 
in support of these activists on the ground to make history with them. And I just think like that's the power, right? Like coming together to do something like also super fun. You know, it was so much fun to partner with them. And we've gone on to partner with them on multiple projects around visibility and acceptance and Asian American families and queerness. And we're, of course, really proud of the work they do and really proud to have stood alongside them as they build their body of work. Wow. Yeah. The power of coming together and the meaning of the word philanthropy is for the love of humankind. So we all have that power, first of all, to engage and to contribute in some way. And then the power if we come together and collectively do something. Totally. And, you know, in English, philanthropy and charity both, right, have their roots in Greek words for love. They're different Greek words for love, but they are different shades of love, right? And the root words for charity and philanthropy are not logic model or theory of change or strategic plan. And I think that the longer that I've done this work, Melissa, like, honestly, the simpler it becomes. (laughs) Like, if you and I spent time talking about your culture of giving, and you asked me more about my culture of giving, and on whose shoulders do you stand? What were the money stories you learned growing up? What were the stories of generosity and scarcity that you learned growing up? And then how does that translate into this weird thing that we do called philanthropy? And we all have that, you know, and I think there's so much power to be had in asking the elders in our family and reconnecting with those traditions and inheritances of generosity and and giving in our families. And then how do we translate that into a modern day practice of philanthropy? That's what I think I would like us to do next as a sector. Yeah, that's so important. It's how we define it, right? There are different definitions of what philanthropy is. And in the more formal sector of philanthropy, you know, we have these ideas. I read your recent report, Thank you. You're one of like five people who read it. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Everyone should read it. So I'm just going to say its name right now so it gets more coverage out there. So everyone needs to read this report. It's so important. It's called Philanthropy Always Sounds Like Someone Else, A Profile of High Net Worth People of Color. And these are stories. You interviewed 113 donors of color. So tell us about that. Well, first of all, it was so much fun. And I'm so lucky that I got to do this work. And I want to give a shout out to the co-founders of the Donors of Color Network, Irvishi Vad, who's organizing angels in heaven right now. She died way too soon, just a couple of months ago. And Ashindi Maxson, who's brilliant. And the three of us co-founded the Donors of Color Network. And this portrait report that you referenced is one of the kind of research papers that undergirded the forming of that network. And I was so lucky to get to read this qualitative research project. And I've interviewed upwards of 150 high net worth donors of color at this point, Melissa, but 113 of the stories went into that. And basically, there's so many themes to share, but the people that we interviewed, just basic demographics, just to share with your folks, they live in 10 cities across the country. The 10 cities are kind of random, like we followed leads. We didn't base it on the census or any thing. We just followed these. So there's some missing gaps. Like we didn't make it to the entire state of Ohio, for example. We didn't make it to Los Angeles or Chicago, but 10 cities are represented and they're not all on the coast. Everyone we interviewed has the capacity to give 50000 away per year or more charitably with their discretionary dollars. The mean giving annually was about 87500 If you add up all of the giving of the folks that we interviewed, well, actually, I need to double check it, but it's in the many, many millions of dollars. The range in annual giving, the max was $17 million. One of the folks that we interviewed was giving away about $17 million a year. And about just shy of a quarter of the 
22% of the people that we interviewed, just to give a snapshot, self-reported liquid net assets north of $30 million. So there isn't a standard definition, but for most definitions, that would qualify as ultra high net worth. And that surprised us, too, because we had our own biases about our own communities. <laughs> like we knew that wealthy folks of color were out there because the three of us were speaking at conferences and we just knew people because of the work that we do. But we just had noticed that there was never anyone there when we went to conferences, especially that convened wealthy donors. There were like under five in the audience of wealthy donors of color in the audience. And that was kind of the impetus to do this research. Like, where are we? Like, we know we're there. We know them. But why aren't they showing up in these places? So Irvishi got a grant and then that led to this research project. In terms of some of the themes that I can share, there's a ton in the paper, as, as you know. The themes that were really resonant for me, like the first is kind of obvious, but very profound. Like every single person that I interviewed, and I did all the interviews except for maybe five, every single person I interviewed has experienced racism, discrimination, or bias based on the color of their skin, their country of origin, their accent, their religion, etc. And it's obvious, but it's also profound, like I said, right? Like, And this impacts how they're going to think about their discretionary dollars. Many of them are trailblazers in a way, like they have leapfrogged multiple rungs on the socioeconomic ladder. They themselves grew up working class, middle class, poor, and in some cases, very, very poor. So they are part of mixed income families and communities, which raises a whole host of interesting, complicated, difficult (laughs) situations at home. One woman I interviewed who's a banker, She's African-American. She says she advises her clients to not be their family's ATM, for example. But she acknowledges how hard that is for her clients because if you're the one person in your family or cousin network or neighborhood who's kind of made it, quote unquote, a lot of people in your family feel like they had a hand in your success and you feel a lot of obligation to fund and support and help and all the people around you. So this was a very resonant theme in the conversations that we had. And over 80% of the people that I interviewed contribute substantial amounts of money and time in support of their family and friends around them. And then I guess the last thing that I can share is that the people that I interviewed, without explicitly calling it the racial wealth gap, they talk about it. Like, they shared stories of moms and dads not being allowed to get married in certain states because of anti-miscegenation laws, or of moms and dads not being able to buy homes in certain parts of town versus others because of redlining. And these systemic facts obviously undermine that family's ability to own wealth, build wealth, and pass it along. So there's sort of a deep lived experience, knowledge experience of these systemic barriers to wealth building and wealth having, wealth passing on in the folks that I interviewed. So that affects how people think about their giving, their political giving, their giving to friends and family, et cetera. Most of the people that I interviewed give politically, I would say, but very few did so with gusto. So that was kind of the big opportunity that we saw to have those conversations with folks about the systems in a way that we could be part of to move change. Yeah, this is all so important for the sector, first to get the data that you've compiled and include in your report, as well as just some of the themes around where people are investing their philanthropic dollars and why. 
And also your observations around the sector itself and how the sector needs to engage donors of color and bring them into peer networks and the value that that is going to bring to the sector and to what's needed in terms of social change in the country. Can you speak a little bit more about that, like some of those findings and to share with us sort of your key thoughts on that? There's so much to say there. And I know that it's really hard work. One of my friends and mentors in this sector is Donna Hall. She is the outgoing president and CEO of the Women Donors Network. It's been a long journey and it's just done an amazing job. But it's really hard to change an organization that was started with mostly white, mostly inherited wealth folks and change it to become one that includes younger people, wealth earners, and also donors of color. And she said to me years ago, you know, that she's made a lot of progress, but years ago she said, you know, Holly, it's not like planting new flowers in the garden. It's more like ripping out the whole dang garden and starting all over again. So I want to just preface this idea by just saying it's hard work and I applaud all the folks out there who are trying really hard to change their legacy foundations and organizations and networks to be more inclusive of people with a different lived experience. And I think the sector just kind of needs to welcome the emergence of other networks that are more centering of folks of color, like the Donors of Color Network. And I hope that there are multiple <laughs> other Donors of Color Network that form in other places or nationally or around the world to add to the ecosystem of our sector. The premise of this is that the story of philanthropy, at least in the United States, has not been fully told, right? Because it's been told primarily as a white story and as a male story, and sometimes as like a dead white man story. <laughs> and so <laughs> what we are trying to add to the literature and also to the ecosystem are other stories of people out there who are real life people, who are real life generous people, who are real life donors, clients, customers, and philanthropists. And I'm going to read a little section. The executive summary of the report, the portrait report, ends with an imagination exercise in which we apply a biodiversity frame to the philanthropic ecosystem and hat tip to Adrienne Marie Brown, who's the originator of this metaphor. So I wrote at the end of the executive summary, imagine a coral reef, imagine the flora and fauna interrelated in complex ways, each dependent on the other for their mutual thriving. Picture the vibrant colors, the mind-boggling patterns, the undulating blue water, the slightly ominous parts, and the stunningly gorgeous parts, the shadows and the light, the moving elements, and the mostly still ones. Let's have that beautiful coral reef, not an endangered bleached monoculture. Can you see it? And that's the call to action, right? The discourse is more full, the work more fun, <laughs> the product more relevant, the good in the world more durable and real when we apply a biodiversity lens, which asks us to think and behave more expansively and inclusively with more wonder and more joy. One of the things that you sent me ahead of our conversation was about spirituality and religion. And to me, when I was thinking about that, it is about this wonder and joy, you know, the vastness and the expansiveness and the things that are not reducible to only biology. Like to me, that's what gets to the spiritual realm of what we're building and of hopefully what we're practicing in the world. Well, I love, first of all, that visualization. So I can just see in my mind's eye, this colorful coral reef where all of the species are interdependent. And interdependence is also a key element to spirituality, as well as, you know, the idea that we're all one and we're all part of the same 
experience on this planet. And so how can we connect? How can we work together? As you know, through Synergos, we have our Global Philanthropist Circle, and it's been around for, for over 20 years. We've been focusing more on making the peer connections within a global context and kind of looking at different parts of the world and the role philanthropy plays and where it's history and where it's making shifts in their own societies. So I really value through that experience, this exchange of stories, like you mentioned, the exchange, the lived experiences. We have so much that we can learn from each other. And there's so much more we can do in collaboration, much like, you know, what you were doing around the kitchen table with your friends. Working in partnership, we go so much further than working on our own. I know from our side, we're just curious, you use the word curious and open to understand, you know, how can we start to build these bridges? How can we take what we have built, which feels like a more of a traditional philanthropic system, and how can we start to do things in a different way, which we all want to do. Yeah, I mean, that's the question of our moment, right? I read something that Rebecca Solnit wrote a couple of months ago, and it was on Facebook of all places. Uh-huh. <laughs> she wrote she wrote about how she thinks that it's really important with about half our time, we spend that time with people who are just like us, because we don't have to bridge build, we don't have to translate, we don't have to ambassador, we can just be comfortable in who we are. But it's equally important with about half our time to spend with people totally unlike us, because it is through those connections with people with a really different life experience, lived experience, current lived experience, that those connections will form so that we can build this multiracial pluralistic democracy which is, I know, I yearn for. I've been thinking also about like the story that I shared with you about Key Wave and the Lunar New Year Parade for All in Chinatown. After that experience, one of the organizers, we were just talking, I don't remember where we saw each other, and they said to me, you know, it really felt like you guys, the Asian Women Giving Circle, were like our aunties cheering on the sidelines. And it struck me that we were their funder, right? But because we're an Asian Women Giving Circle, we go to a lot of the same parties and restaurants. Like We're much closer to them. And we're not as scary as even the New York Women's Foundation that funds all the cool projects in New York City. That closeness is important, right? And Brian Stevenson calls it proximity. But the other thing that I think has really stuck with me is like, what is the posture that we take that we're going to stand in as a donor? Because in the donor funder grantee partner relationship, the person with the more money typically historically traditionally has more power, at least in that narrow confines of resources, right? And if those of us who care about building a more equitable, fair, even exchange opportunity relationship that's not like a little bit more transformation, like moving a little bit away from the transaction of the philanthropic relationship, a little bit more towards transformation. We can make a decision what kind of posture we want to take. And the Asian Women Giving Circle, we love this idea of being aunties. I talked to another woman who loves the idea of being kind of a coach. She used to be a basketball coach and a point guard when she played basketball. And she sees her role in the women's movement and feminist movements as being kind of a point guard or a coach, but she's part of a team. You know, it's a fundamentally different posture. I have a friend who's gay and lives in Michigan, and he calls himself 
Uncle Ricky, you know, like the role of being a gunkle, a gay uncle. And there's a lot of comedy about that and all of us need a gunkle in our lives. But that's another posture that I think we can inhabit that's much different than being like, I'm the expert and I'm the one with all the learning and I'm the one with the degree and the blah, 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 blah. Like it's just that posture is really important because that's where we start from. It's really about more cue than pulpit. And so many of the spaces, I mean, it's a little bit of a critique, I guess, like too many spaces, I think, in our social change worlds are kind of shunning and shaming. And there's too much of kind of this finger wagging. And who wants to be in spaces like that? You know, no one wants to be in spaces like that. So I think we can and philanthropy can. That's a role that philanthropy can play is to try to create spaces where there is belonging and connecting and relating as human beings, knowing that someone over there has two kids and someone over there is dealing with an ill mother and this one over there is has just lost their dog. You know, like just knowing these things about each other, it's incredibly important that we do that because the work ahead is, it's a long road and it's a lot of it's going to be hard and we have to have built these relationships with each other so that we can do those hard, good things ahead of us. Yeah, it's the human connection and the love that's really at the core of all of this work and looking, I think, honestly and transparently at those structures of power and the history behind some of these structures around philanthropy. 100%. And philanthropy is actually a pretty small lever, right? Like if we look at the money that's moved in philanthropy as opposed to the money that's collected in taxes as compared to the money that moves in capital markets, the money that's moved in philanthropy is relatively small. So I think in our sector, when we're working with donors or with foundations or whatever, like it's important to keep in mind that scale and how can we harness our collective power to influence those larger systems like who we elect and the political system and what's our tax policy and also capital markets. What kind of customer are we? What kind of investor? What's our role? What's the power that we can wield as a shareholder in that company? How can we use our capital in ways that aren't just philanthropic, but maybe it's about like buying a building for this nonprofit or buying land for this blah, 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 blah. Like there's different ways that I think individual donors are thinking about leveraging their power to bring about the change that they want to see. Yeah, there's shifts. It just feels on all levels. And so we're all navigating what that looks like. And there are are people like you who are making the shift happen. So I really want to appreciate the work that you're doing. As for my final question, I'd like to ask you, you know, how would you imagine the future? What can philanthropy do to help us get there? You ask the hardest questions. I mean, I want (laughs) us to see. I mean, I'm talking about an American context where I'm in the U.S. Blue sky, you know, yeah. Yeah, blue sky. I mean, a multiracial, pluralistic democracy (laughs) where each of us has equal opportunity to love who we want, worship how we want, to live into our full potential as our beautiful best selves. And I would argue that the way we get there is in community and with love and with as much joy as we can harness and by collectivizing ourselves. Because this work, it's literally too big for one person, no matter how wealthy to do on their own. And the work is going to be so much more fun if we do it like arm in arm with people across different experiences, but with common purpose. That's the joy. So let's do it that way. That was very eloquently said for a question that you thought was hard. Wow, you just created a vision that I think is something that we're all, many of us are working towards. And hopefully as we work together, we can accelerate that time frame for making it happen. How can people learn more about the work that you're doing? Call me. <laughs> Call me. <Yeah. laughs> well, kind of. I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. So you can email me. 
you know, honestly, really easy to get hold of. And I'm building with some really dear friends and partners. I get to work with these amazing young women of color, mostly. We're building a freedom school for philanthropy. I can show you, I mean, I know people on the podcast won't see it, but it's this beautiful curriculum that's aimed squarely at moving dollars faster towards equity and justice movements. And it's been so much fun. And so get hold of me if you're interested in learning more about that. Is the best way to go through LinkedIn or the Donors of Color Network, or where's the best starting point for them to reach you? Like email me, holly at radiantstrategies.co, or through LinkedIn is a good way to. I don't work at the Donors of Color anymore, so don't do that. So through Radiant or through LinkedIn probably is the best way. Okay, great. Well, Holly, I want to thank you so much for coming on and sharing your stories. I feel like we could have talked for about 10 more hours, but... I know. We didn't even talk about religion and all the... I was a religion major in college, and it just made me think about Elaine Pagels and Cornel West and Annie Dillard and all those great books that I got to read and I still think about. And sorry, I should have gone there first, but thank you for having me, Melissa. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you again. We'll have to continue the conversation another time. Thank you. Thank you so much. What I love about this conversation with Holly is learning the way she is shifting the field of philanthropy to make it more diverse and equitable, and at the same time, bringing immense creativity and joy. 